is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. Welcome, everyone, to the Asia Insight podcast by the National Bureau of Asian Research. I'm Allison Solwinski, Vice President for Research at MBR. In this podcast series, we interview top experts to discuss key issues in the Indo-Pacific. In today's episode, MBR advisor and associate professor at Middlebury College, Jessica Tietz interviews Elizabeth Economy, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, about her new book, The World According to China, which was just released last week. To what extent is Chinese foreign policy changing the geostrategic, economic, and political landscape? The story of Chinese foreign policy and the pandemic that unfolded over the course of 2020 presented a complex and, for many foreign observers, concerning picture of what future Chinese global leadership might entail. Xi Jinping's bold calls for China to lead in the reform of the global governance system suggests that he has just such an ambition. But how does he plan to realize it? And what does it mean for the rest of the world? In her book, Dr. Economy unpacks just how we should understand China's role in the global stage, its ambitions, its levers of influence, and its future impact on the world. Dr. Economy is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. She was previously a senior fellow for China Studies at the Council of Foreign Relations, where she also served as the CV Star Senior Fellow and Director for Asia Studies for over a decade. With that, Jessica, I'll turn it over to you to conduct the interview. Thank you. And I also want to thank Elizabeth Economy for joining me today to discuss her new book, The World According to China. Your previous books, which I've also read, have always tackled really big, complex issues and then used a lot of data, including your own interviews and conversations to try to understand what's happening. So I was really excited to read this new book about uh, China's changing foreign policy. I learned a lot from it. Um, I even had a laugh or two when I noticed that the Belts and Roads Forum acronym was BARF. My nine-year-old also really liked that. And I'm looking forward to discussing this book in more detail with you today. So I wanted to start with the big question, I guess. And so you you say in the book that you think that Xi Jinping's goal for China's foreign policy is to reorder the world order, which is a really big goal, but also that as he attempts to do this, the less credibility and attraction many of his initiatives hold for others and the more challenging additional gains become. And you present this, you don't use these words, but you present this sort of as an authoritarian dilemma. So you have this highly centralized party state system, which gives Xi the ability to mobilize and deploy political, economic, military resources, information control to induce and coerce other states to adopt his policy preferences, but you also seem to suggest that this same structure triggers distrust and balancing behavior. And so I was wondering if you could describe how the system delivers both the strengths and the weaknesses of the foreign policy, and then also if you think this dilemma is based in the structure of the Chinese system itself, are there any changes that we might expect to the system to improve it? Well, thank you so much, uh, Jessica. Thank you, uh, NBR, for inviting me to do this podcast. Okay, Jessica, you know, 
as a scholar, you have asked the big question. In fact, it's probably the question of the book. It's my main thesis. So let's just take the next 30 minutes. And I just won't stop talking. Uh, no, let me let me try to take a, a narrow scope on this and then, you know, you can have some follow up questions. You're exactly right. I mean, the, the case I, I make is that first, Xi Jinping does want to reorder the world order, that it's not, as some people suggest, merely reform around the, the margins. He really has a transformative vision. Um, and that extends across, you know, sort of five big dimensions, which, you know, we can discuss. But very briefly, it's around, you know, redrawing the map, uh, the very geography of China. It's so, you know, incorporating Chinese sovereignty claims. It's about China leading in the Asia Pacific. It's about China embedding its own values and policy priorities in other countries. It's about how China can be a kind of more insular economy and in the same, at the same time be a global economic power. And finally, it's about how China you know, manages to use global governance institutions uh, to cement um, its, its values and its policy priorities. And so uh, that's the kind of, that's the, the big ambition. And you know, I suggest in the book that you know, China more than any other country, because as you say, of its authoritarian system is able to mobilize uh, political and economic uh, resources to pursue this vision. Uh, and I think Xi Jinping differs in many respects from previous Chinese leaders. You know, they all called for the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation in one way or another. Um, but he differs, I think, first in his ability to articulate, you know, not just the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, but actually, you know, a strategy to realize uh, that vision, uh, but also because he has the capabilities uh, more than any other previous Chinese leader to realize those ambitions. And in part, he walked in, obviously, to greater capabilities because he's built upon the economic success of China um, that had come before him. Uh, but also he has very um, uh, definitively and sort of methodically built those resources. For example, investing a lot in the People's Liberation Army so that he could have a, a PLA that is, yes, he puts it capable of fighting and winning wars. So she's able to mobilize these resources, you know, in, in what I call a multi-level way, which is to say that he takes what he does at home uh, and then he reinforces and he pushes it through something like the Belt and Road Initiative and then reinforces it in global governance institutions. Just for one example, it might be how China relates to freedom of speech and Internet governance. And so um, we know that China under Xi Jinping has become more repressive. The flow of information has become less free. And we see that now through the Belt and Road, China offers, you know, cybersecurity training seminars, right? It will help Tanzania learn how to do real-time censorship of the internet, right? It will offer uh, its own internet governance law as a model uh, for other countries. And then we look and see, you know, in the United Nations that China will propose a new initiative like new IP, which basically will give uh, the Chinese government, will give any government the ability to control the flow of information to any device connected through the internet. So just a kind of off switch, um, a shut off switch. So you can see that this is a sort of a multi-level effort. It's a long-term project um, that's underway and, and it goes across a multitude of areas. It's not just about human rights or internet governance. It had, you know, you can see it play out in things like uh, China's desire to become a, a, play a greater role in the Arctic. Right. It's it's a it's a fascinating, really a fascinating process, you know, because it really does require this incredible mobilization of human resources at home 
again, that then are deployed, you know, in a, in, in a thoughtful way uh, globally and then reinforced, you know, so resources at multiple levels. So what happens, though, is that over time, I think other countries begin to see uh, externalities of the system, which aren't necessarily appreciated in the first iteration of an effort. Right. So let's just take the Confucius Institutes as one sort of small example. The Confucius Institutes, which actually began before Xi Jinping came to power, uh, but were ramped up um, under his leadership, uh, you know, basically uh, just an effort by the Chinese government to provide Chinese uh, language instruction and, and sort of cultural opportunities uh, to universities and schools globally. And, you know, initially they proliferated very rapidly. I think there was a lot of excitement globally particularly, you know, universities that didn't necessarily have Chinese language programs, these Confucius Institutes offered an opportunity to, to offer Chinese language instruction to students. Over time, though, you know, you began to have, uh, began to realize there were some oddities with this system, right? For one, the contracts were not transparent, right? The Chinese government said you can't make the contracts public. China chose the professors and the curriculum and you know, that's not uh, something that's typical in university governance structure, basically to turn over the selection of professors to a different country. It's very unusual. Maybe it never happens that way. And so and then you began to think, well, what does this mean to have uh, this system, you know, Chinese government basically defining the way that our students are learning Chinese, defining the content of Chinese language instruction? So, for example, you know, when I took newspaper Chinese in graduate school, you know, could read a whole array of different kinds of articles, different sort of political things that might be happening, something about Tiananmen or so, who knows what, right? But, but, um, but the full dynamics of, of Chinese politics and contrarian views, you can rest assured that in the Confucius Institute, <laughs> there are not going to be sort of open discussions of, you know, Tiananmen Square and the mass demonstrations in 1989. So I think, um, you know, over time, this sort of export of, of China's own, you know, limitations uh, on freedom of speech, in essence, right, rub up against democratic principles and become unattractive. It just it takes an awakening and it, it takes some people recognizing it. Then it takes, you know, shining a light on what's wrong with this system. And then you can see now, and this is something that I, I, I point out. One of the things that I found surprising, frankly, um, as I was doing the research, is that, you know, China set this target of a thousand Confucius Institutes by 2020, and yet there were only about 542 in universities globally. And, and so, you know, sometimes we also have this sense that whatever Xi Jinping says <laughs> is going to be fully realized, right? So that ambition is set out there. There's an enormous amount of media attention that surrounds anything that he proposes, anything that China says it's going to do, any of these grand scale initiatives. But then oftentimes media don't actually follow up, right? Nobody really looks and says, hey, now what's happened? Did Was this actually realized? So anyway, that's a, a pattern that I found across a number of areas where initially there's enormous amount of enthusiasm for a Chinese initiative. But as the as the externalities begin to become appreciated in other countries, you begin to have a back reaction, you have a pushback that actually contributes in, in many respects to make it more difficult for China to move forward. So you're, you're talking about 
these externalities are sort of where the goals of maybe the Chinese projects aren't really meeting what the domestic goals are of the country that's hosting it. I also wonder if there's growing distrust of the motivations behind these projects, if you're seeing that as well with the externalities. So it's not necessarily just that the way that the Confucius Institute is operating doesn't match the culture of the institution that's hosting it, but also if you are starting to see that there's distrust about these motivations where China's presenting things as sort of a, a benevolent gift, right? Like we'll help your Chinese language learning or we'll help you build roads because it's the right thing to do. And that maybe there's also now distrust about what those real motivations are. Are you seeing that as well? Motivations certainly come into play when you're looking at uh, some of China's you know, more coercive um, what sometimes are called covert, you know, sharp power efforts. And these are things that, as you suggest, are painted in one way, but actually have um, a, a sort of a subtext to them uh, that leads to something else. And, and in those cases, I find that there's often an attempt by China to mask things, right? So you don't necessarily appreciate unless you really think through all the way down the line. So, for example, in the Czech Republic, you know, you can find that China will pay, uh, you know, universities to teach a course on the Belt and Road Initiative and then reward the students who write the best essays on the Belt and Road with a trip to China, right? So, so it's a way of, so it sounds great, but it's also a way of trying to reinforce a narrative, of course, that the Belt and Road is a great thing and everyone loves the Belt and Road because certainly no one is getting a trip to China who's going to be critical of the Belt and Road. But you don't necessarily see that right up front. So I think there is some suspicion. Certainly the Belt and Road Initiative more broadly has raised a lot of suspicion, you know, things around the debt trap diplomacy. I have to say, I don't think uh, that China, China's ambition initially with, with the Belt and Road was to entrap countries so that they couldn't repay uh, the loans so that China would then be able to seize material assets like a port or a mine. That has happened in a few cases, but I don't think that was the original ambition. Of course, it's written to contracts, but there are two sides that sign those contracts, right? No country is forced into um, you know, a Belt and Road uh, deal or negotiation. Uh, but, I, but I think the, the bigger story about the Belt and Road, again, goes back to those externalities that people didn't necessarily appreciate, right? So that here, the Belt and Road really is almost the full-scale uh, export of the China development model, right? It's rapid infrastructure, it's debt-induced, it's exactly what happened in China, right? Uh, it's the way China itself developed, without any care for the environment, without any care for labor, uh, without any care for the transparency of contracts. All of that plays out now in Belt and Road countries. But what we have in Belt and Road countries is greater agency, right? Agency that doesn't exist within China itself for Chinese citizens. And so again, over time, you know, citizens in other countries realize, hey, China's exporting their labor to do these these you know, infrastructure projects, we're actually not benefiting that much uh, from what's taking place. Moreover, 
there's this pollution that we didn't have before from these development projects because China didn't do an environmental impact assessment uh, ahead of the game. Um, there's no social impact assessment. So, um, and by the way, uh, you know, new leaders come into these countries and then they find that the terms of the Belt and Road, you know, contracts are really not very favorable to the country. Maybe there was some kind of corruption and, and that took place. And so uh, I think that's why you see now protests in virtually every Belt and Road country that you look at, you know, uh, from Kenya to Kazakhstan. So I think that's the pain that China now faces, right, um, uh, as a result of the way that it does business. It does business just the way it did in China, exports that globally. But again, other countries don't want that China model. I also appreciated in the book how careful you were to pull apart everything that often gets lumped together in the Belts and Roads Initiative. So looking at policies that were already underway in places like Yunnan to have better uh, border flexibility for bringing in goods and people. Um, also the AIIB, which is an entirely different entity with different goals. So I found that um, the way that you tried to pull apart the Belts and Roads Initiative was really helpful because I think sometimes it's explained as an initiative with coherence and, you know, everything is sort of lining up with certain goals when really there's a lot of programs, a lot of actors that are all being thrown together. So I think that that's also a really valuable thing you have in the book. I wanted to push you a little bit on um, a sort of a bigger IR discussion. Um, and so one of the books that I use a lot when I'm teaching, although it's getting a little bit older now, is David Shambaugh's A Partial Power that was published in 2013. And he makes this argument that, you know, Chinese capabilities abroad are wide but not very deep. But you seem to be making this argument that not only is there a change in foreign policy in the goal of you know, reordering the current world order, but also in the methods. And I pulled this quote out of, of your book that the CCP penetrates societies and economies abroad to shape international actors' political and economic choices in much the same way it does with domestic actors. That seems to be suggesting something entirely different from this idea of a partial power. And I wonder if if you think that this is just something that, where these capabilities and goals have changed over time, or if you think this was already underway, but we just didn't recognize it for what it was. China's interest in shaping uh, internal affairs of other countries, shaping the policy choices has been around for a long time. We call them United Front activities, right? China has often used or tried to use Chinese nationals uh, in other countries to, to influence political decisions in different ways. But I think there's been a, f a pretty dramatic ramping up of this kind of activity under Xi Jinping. He's put a lot of resources, both financial and in terms of human capital, into the United Front activities. He's vastly expanded uh, the number of Chinese um, operating in, in international institutions based in other countries uh, to support these kinds of activities. So I don't think there's any doubt. First, that it, it always existed. We, we know that it existed, you know, it's existed for decades, but also that Xi Jinping sees this as a very uh, important uh, element of his ability to, to, you know, wield influence globally. I think to my mind, what's become more threatening in, in many respects 
even than some of the covert activities that we've seen China pursue in other countries is this notion that China can control things like the freedom of speech of other actors. You know, there used to be, as you well know, a sense that as long as you didn't talk about Taiwan, Hong Kong, and the South China Sea, right, there's a sort of narrow set of issues where, you know, the core issues, and if you just didn't cross that red line and adopted a position that was different uh, from that of the Chinese government, you would somehow be okay. But I think we've seen that's simply not the case. And, uh, you know, we've, we saw it in 2017, certainly with in with South Korea, the deployment of the THAAD missile system, you know, where China launched an economic boycott. Certainly we've seen it now uh, during the COVID pandemic with China's boycott of Australia, just because Australia called for an investigation into the origins uh, of the pandemic. And we see it in, in, I think, in new ways, very overtly, for example, the case of Daryl Morey, the Houston Rockets general manager, and everybody's familiar with this case now, you know, where he tweeted in 2019, you know, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. And then CCTV stopped broadcasting the NBA games and Tencent stopped streaming them. And the stores in China pulled all the merchandise from the Houston Rockets off their shelves. But what struck me uh, about that particular event was not so much the reaction, although that was striking, but rather what CCTV said at the time, which was that issues related to sovereignty and social stability do not fall within the purview of free speech. And here we had, you know, an American citizen on a platform that China doesn't even allow to its own citizens, Twitter, tweeting something. Uh, and and China believes that it has the right right to control that person's speech, and I found this quite a dramatic expansion of China's you know sense of of its influence on the global stage of what it ought to be able to tell uh, the rest of the world to do. What China considers to be problematic for its social stability can engage a very wide range of issues. And, you know, I point out, you know, the expulsion of the Wall Street Journal reporters for the um, opinion piece that Walter Mus- Russell Mead wrote that the Wall Street Journal entitled, you know, that had the, the word sick man of Asia in it. You know, again, was that really merited? Was that warranted? Um, it just, it I think, speaks A, to the, the incredible sensitivity of China, but also just to its ability that it can simply expel these journalists without any repercussions. It can punish the NBA or any other economic actor without fear of any repercussions. The discussion that you had about these changes in tools with, in addition to soft power, both the the sharp power and the hard power with these examples that you've been talking about, I've been really struck by these as well as, as I think most people have been, just because they seem so tone deaf also. And you point this out in your book that they're not actually getting the Australian government to change its policies, um, or they're not getting, you know, people in the U.S. to no longer believe in, in free speech. And so it would be tempting 
attempting to look at that behavior and say that's bad foreign policy, it's not accomplishing its goals. But I'm wondering if you think that those sorts of messages are really intended for an external audience, or do you think that this is more intended for a domestic audience and this is more of sort of nationalism and, and, and that sort of domestic signaling? So um, I think, you know, what I, what I found is that China has um, pretty good success in shaping the behavior of most multinationals. So if you're if you're simply an economic actor, uh, what China, the Chinese pressure actually tends to be fairly effective, not completely. And I, I have some examples in the book where, for example, uh, within the airline industry, um, some uh, airlines uh, attempt to split the difference, you know, when China basically said, we're, we're going to uh, refuse your landing rights if you don't change the way you identify Taiwan on your website. Most airlines uh, simply incorporated Taiwan, part of mainland China, but a number tried to find a way to continue to individuate Taiwan from the mainland on the website, slightly differently from the way they had done before, but nonetheless not to bow completely uh, to Chinese pressure. Countries tend not to, as, as you mentioned, tend not to sacrifice their self-interest uh, for, for, uh, you know, for China's pressure. Is this for a domestic audience? I think that is the case. I think basically there is no other <laughs> explanation. I think that Xi Jinping in particular has said, you know, if you punch us, we're going to punch you back, right? And, and so to the extent that he feels that any of these actions like identifying Taiwan as a separate entity is somehow a slap against China, he's slapping back and, and he's showing the Chinese people that China is no longer going to be cowed, that China doesn't believe it has anything to be ashamed of uh, in terms of its policies, in terms of its human rights uh, practices, in terms of its domestic governance model. So I think that this definitely speaks to the Chinese people, to a sense of Chinese nationalism. I also think that she has been fairly effective at insulating the Chinese people from understanding the impact that these behaviors have on China's image. And so with the exception of a strata of a stratum of, of elite foreign policy community, for example, who are well aware of the downsides of Chinese foreign policy behavior. I think most Chinese people believe that China has a very positive image on the global stage. They're not aware of those global public opinion polls that say there's very little trust in Xi Jinping and very little desire to have China as a as the leader, as a preeminent leader on the global stage. Some countries are more supportive than others, but overall, striking, I think strikingly from one continent to the next, there's general agreement that China and Xi Jinping have not emerged as sort of the, the type of country that the rest of the world wants uh, as the uh, preeminent power. But I don't think that the Chinese people are aware of these polls. And so I think it, in, in that respect, Xi Jinping can also operate with a much uh, freer hand than a leader in a democracy would be able to. And if I could follow up with that idea, um, just because I, you, you had a couple of stories in the book of different people who had been active in foreign policy, who had opposing ideas, right? Different ways that, that China should be engaging the world. And it sounds like in your account that most of these voices are not very loud or they're not speaking up in opposition anymore. 
And I'm wondering if, you know, when we think about different foreign policy communities inside of China, are there any that are offering alternative ways forward or is pretty much the policy that you describe with Xi Jinping, um, is this the only foreign policy that's really being thought about? I think clearly there have been voices um, in the foreign policy community, even through the pandemic, for example, that have argued that China's wolf warrior diplomacy, right, it's very aggressive, coercive diplomacy, you know, calling on countries saying you have to thank us for the personal protective equipment for the PPE, or if you don't put Huawei in your 5G network, we're not going to provide you with PPE. I mean, all of these different stories about these wolf warrior diplomats. There were definitely foreign policy analysts, leading scholars uh, with whom I spoke, who not only believed that wolf warrior diplomacy was a bad idea, but did articulate this in different, different settings in different ways. And honestly, some of them believed that it was going to end. <laughs> so I had discussions that said, don't worry, you know, we everybody recognizes that this isn't working. And so, you know, in the next month or so, it's all going to be over. Well, it's, it's now six, nine months later, and it's still going on. So clearly they, they didn't understand how this was all going to play out. I think more concerning, frankly, is the fact that I have spoken to a number of people engaged in foreign policy who say they simply aren't offering opinions that differ widely from the overall thrust of current policy because they are afraid for their career. They know they're not going to be listened to, and it's possible that they will be, you know, seen as not supportive of the government and that this will harm their future. And I think this is really problematic. I think a lot of people already believe that Xi Jinping, you know, has a very narrow circle, very small circle of senior advisors to whom he listens. And if he's not even able to garner the full range of opinions from the analytical and scholarly community, uh, I think that presents a real problem for Chinese foreign policy, because then you have you know, a real echo chamber that is emerging. Uh, and I think that's a very dangerous situation. I agree. And I also think that um, the the fact that even though this foreign policy shows all these signs of places where it's failing to work, that that also is not introducing any change. So I see the same thing with domestic policies also, is that even though they're not all working in the way that they're intended, there's this lack of feedback. And without that kind of feedback, it's difficult to see where change could come from in the system. I sometimes play this out in my my mind, you know, in that combination of the domestic policy and the foreign policy and what could lead to change. Uh, and I have to say, I think it's only really a confluence of a slowing Chinese economy, the sort of polarized society, a lot of groups within China, I think that we can both appreciate that don't necessarily support the direction in which Xi Jinping is moving the country, either in terms of the domestic policy or in terms of the coercive elements of the Chinese foreign policy. I think a lot of Chinese are probably very proud of China's growing role on the global stage. And I think that's natural, right? Uh, but but I think in terms of the way that uh, Chinese foreign policy is being conducted, I think I know that there's a, a lot of discontent uh, in certain circles in China. You know, and then you have the international headwinds, right? So some confluence of all those things coming together to produce some kind of 
shift in the top Chinese leadership, right? Some new pressure to be brought on Xi Jinping by more moderate voices who would say everything is coming together in a way that's not productive for our country. You need to move to the second line, <laughs> like Mao Zedong after the Great Leap Forward. <laughs> so, so, you know, not not pushing him out of power completely, but diminishing his role within the top leadership. That's the only path forward that I see, frankly, in terms of moderation. I, I've seen no evidence that Xi Jinping is capable or interested, as you say, in moderating his behavior. And honestly, it's sometimes it's a puzzle to me, and I'm sure you saw the quotation from him last summer where he said that he wanted the Chinese diplomats to go out and create an image of China that was more respectable and lovable and credible. And I thought to myself, do you not realize that after 10 years, almost 10 years of being in power, you know, that people everywhere inside China and outside China see your actions on the ground? There's no ability now to create a narrative <laughs> that's, that's going to achieve all those things unless your actions actually match up. And I don't know, does he not actually appreciate, not the first time he said it. Um, I don't know whether he, there's a disconnect in his mind and he really believes that simply by saying these things, people will believe them. I don't know. Yeah, I've, I have the same concerns also with changes in domestic policy is that those mechanisms where China would learn from other models, whether they were domestic models or international models, or where you would get feedback, right? And you would see that, oh, the, the data is telling us that one model is performing better than the other, so let's go with that model. Those sorts of feedback mechanisms um, are, are being completely moved out of the domestic system as well. And so it's difficult to see where sources of change could come except from elite politics, but that sort of change, as you point out, could be violent, right? Or, or really destabilizing. And so that's a concern that I have as well with domestic politics is that the sources of change that I see are not ones that I would, would wish for. Um, I know that we are quickly running out of time and that you need to go, but I did want to ask um, a question about Taiwan and then just a question about Sino-US relations. So we can end with just those two questions. The question about Taiwan is that we know that reunification has been an important goal, right? That every Chinese leader has said, you know, we want to reunify all the, the parts of, of China together. But it seems like the difference here isn't the goal of reunification, but it's Xi's willingness to risk domestic and international backlash to achieve that reunification. And so in the past, when we thought about reunification, the idea was that the costs were so high that there wouldn't be forced reunification and instead any sort of settlement would need to be negotiated and approved on both sides. And it seems like what you're suggesting is that that may no longer be true, in which case I was wondering if you could talk about anything that the international community, the U.S. or Taiwan could do in order to keep that peaceful option as the, the primary option. So are there specific things that could be done to increase those costs so that reunification would need to be negotiated versus just imposed? Yeah, so this is, I think, um, probably the issue that concerns me most, especially in the wake of Hong Kong. And I think that Xi Jinping is, has a much 
greater tolerance for risk than previous Chinese um, leaders have had. And he's much more willing to have, you know, to destabilize a situation in the near term for a longer term objective. And again, I think we saw that in Hong Kong. Uh, He gambled that there really wouldn't be significant repercussions. And in many respects, there haven't been. Um, So uh, in terms of Taiwan, I fully believe, and there is, as you know, sort of wide um, debate, broad debate, over whether or not Xi Jinping is actually saying anything different from what previous Chinese leaders have said. And I argue that he is, that he has said that there can be no great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation without unification. He's identified unification with Taiwan as one of the 14 must-do items. And I believe that he will not consider his legacy to be complete without unification. So I take his words very seriously. (laughs) And I think the credibility uh, of the one country, two systems model has been undermined, uh, to put it mildly, by what has transpired in Hong Kong, right? That model was supposed to exist until 2047 and it's, it's been completely undone. So what can the international community do I think it takes much it will take much more than the United States and Taiwan alone to deter the mainland. And so one of the things that the Biden administration has done has been to encourage other countries to to engage with Taiwan and to become more involved, frankly, in the broader Indo-Pacific. And so you've seen countries in Europe now that previously were really only interested in Asia and China. Uh, in terms of their trade and investment, now adopt their own Indo-Pacific strategies, you know, security strategies. You have the UK and France and Germany, the Netherlands becoming more involved in sailing through the South China Sea. Uh, You have small countries establishing, you know, raising uh, their diplomatic profile like Lithuania and uh, Slovenia now with, with Taiwan. I think importantly, you have Japan and Australia both stepping up to say, that Taiwan's security is tied to their own security. And that is a very significant shift in their policies. So, uh, and I think there's there's clearly an effort underway to bring Taiwan into a range of regional agreements and efforts and to showcase you know, Taiwan. And so I think all of those things are important. I think Taiwan developing its own deterrent capability is important as well. But I also think it's important that whatever steps we take diplomatically, we being the United States and other countries, that at the same time as we're enhancing Taiwan's diplomatic role, that we are ensuring that we are enhancing its security. So what I don't want to see are sort of efforts that promote Taiwan on the global stage politically without at the same time increasing its actual military deterrent capability. And so that to me, that's what I'm, I'm looking for right now as I look at Taiwan. I, I don't want to see just a political enhancement. I, I want to see also military. 
these are really good concrete suggestions. So I think that that's really helpful. And I wanted to end with with one final question, which is a little bit depressing, but you're, you don't work for Disney, so you don't owe us any happy endings. But when you end the book, you sort of talk about the fact that we might be facing a situation where the world sort of splits into two different ecosystems and that that might be sort of the, the final point that we're heading towards. And I was wondering when you talk about the you talk about the thousand talents plan and you talk about the US China initiative and when you talk about those it's unclear whether what sort of behavior I guess I should say is really problematic there so on one hand we're we're talking about the theft of intellectual property from sort of one half of the ecosystem going to the other half the authoritarian half of the ecosystem but also if I think about all the different examples that I know of of people who work in both China and the US scientists who have lab facilities in more than one country there are lots of examples like that and there's nothing really bad or sinister going on there you know these people aren't spies and i'm wondering if our response of the the china in initiative is really sort of forcing people to feel that they have to choose sides in this ecosystem that it's going to be impossible to sort of do research in china do research in the us without being suspected by both and that you really just sort of have to pick a side and i wondered what you thought about that so when we talk about like people to people initiative civil society academic exchange if we are moving to a situation where we're going to split into sort of uh, two ecosystems systems, is there any role for that sort of people-to-people -people engagement? So, I mean, it's a really important question, and uh, I think it has to be approached in, in sort of two different ways. I think first, in the broader issue of people-to-people -people engagement, I think it's really important to understand that China, right, ha has been the one to constrain that people-to-people -people engagement in a fundamental way, for example, by passing the law on the management of you know, foreign NGOs, right? Which in 2017, which led to the number of foreign non-governmental organizations that had been active in China around things like environmental protection and poverty alleviation, migrant education, to fall from more than 7,000 to about 400 some unique uh, NGOs. In, if you're really looking for ways in which, you know, people to people ties, you know, have, have um, been limited, it's it's that kind of policy that has accomplished that, or China kicking out, um, you know, journalists, foreign journalists uh, from the country. I mean, there are still probably, you know, 20 to 30 times as many uh, Chinese journalists in the United States as there are U.S. journalists in China. So I mean, there's an enormous, you know, inequality, quite frankly. In terms of the example that you raised, though, the scientific one, this has traditionally been an area where the United States has been more concerned about Chinese scientists collaborating with U.S. scientists in ways that, yes, as you suggest, lead to the illegal transfer of intellectual property. And I think it's important that the U.S. take this very seriously. How should we approach it in a way that doesn't either unduly constrain legitimate and and healthy cooperation uh, that doesn't uh, unduly target Chinese scientists or Chinese American certainly scientists. I think that's 
question. And I think there are a couple things that we should be doing. Number one, um, in defining, I think, fairly clearly the technologies, for example, that we believe to be critical to U.S. national security and where we don't want not just Chinese scientists, perhaps, but foreign scientists more broadly or, you know, scientists from countries that we believe pose a security threat to the United States, you know, working on those technologies. You know, do we want foreign scientists in our national labs? There are issues around the type of science that universities do, you know, if they take a Defense Department contract. So I think there are ways where if we become much more explicit about areas, you know, technologies and processes, right, that I think we can avoid the sort of broad brush strokes or targeting that I think has happened in the past here. Having said all of that, I think it is instructive that when all of this started to move, this China initiative, and and honestly, this concern over the possibility that China had purposefully placed Chinese scientists in the United States to steal technology, not just from from universities, by the way, but also from U.S. companies, didn't begin in the Trump administration, began before that. So I think that's important. You know, Trump administration <laughs> ramped it up and, and, you know, in ways that I think um, introduced some new kinds of challenges, but it began before the Trump administration. So I think now it's instructive that once the U.S. government found a number of these scientists, that plane loads of Chinese scientists were then brought back to China independently by China, because clearly there were many more people engaged in this than anybody here in the United States had appreciated. So it is a real effort by the Chinese government that cannot be underestimated. But as with all of these kinds of covert, coercive, sort of sharp power initiatives on the part of the Chinese government, they're very difficult to address. And it takes time for other countries to get it right, right? Because the immediate reaction is a is going to be defensive and it's likely to be an overreaction once you realize the nature of this threat. Now it's time uh, for us to calibrate it and to make sure that it, it just is as narrowly constructed and targeted as possible. Thank you so much for all of the time that you spent today talking about your book. Again, I learned a lot. Well, thank you, Jessica, for all of the very interesting and, and rich questions. And on behalf of MBR, thanks to both of you, Jessica and Elizabeth, for such a comprehensive discussion of these issues. For our listeners, be sure to check out Dr. Economy's new book, The World According to China, published by Wiley. And we'll catch you next time on Asia Insight. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.